What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Today's guest is Miss Eva Love. She joins me from her home in Miami via Skype. We talk art fairs, big ideas, getting paid, life's constants, speaking one's mind, art Buddhas, Cuban soup, tags, collecting, ugly pots, hair of the dead, uh, losing the juice, Kanye West, car salesman, paint pants, cleverness, and success. So make sure you go to check out MikeMaxwellArt.com. Click on the podcast. You can get all the information about each artist who have been on the show. Uh, you can also click on the blog over there at MikeMaxwellArt.com. And you can get a little more in-depth information about each show. Some images from the artists and uh, links to their websites and, and all that good stuff. This episode is sponsored by Freakware.com. That's F-R-E-K-W-A-R-E.com. It's the Hardy. Uh, they got a bunch of new stuff coming up here soon, which is cool. They got a bunch of new designs, then are working with some new artists. So make sure you go follow them on Facebook. That's F-R-E-K-W-A-R-E. And follow them on Twitter. Both of those are F-R-E-K-W-A-R-E. Um, and go to their website, Freakware.com. You can check out all the cool shirts that they have available. They got men's and women's. I was just checking out the um, the Hummingbird joint. I need to uh, get one of those for Crystal. I'm super stoked to have them on board. They're a rad company that's interested in people who sort of blur the lines of what society deems normal. And in a positive way. Not just like like saying, fuck normal society. But in a way of saying, like, hey, look, there's different routes that we could take in this life. And uh, sometimes those those things aren't always apparent. And it takes uh, some people who sort of blur those lines to show um, some of the things that are available in this life. So go over to Freakware.com. It's F-R-E-K-W-A-R-E.com. Use Live Free as the code and save 20%. So it's, uh, they take care of your taxes for you. So go do that. We're going to set up a contest of some sort. I did this before when I first started the podcast. Um, I don't know how we're going to do it quite yet, but uh, we're going to set something up. Maybe we'll do like a retweet. Everybody like retweets a particular tweet. Uh, we'll be in a drawing for a cool gift pack from Freakware. So probably a bunch of shirts and um, a bunch of different things. So make sure you go do that. Go to Freakware.com. Use the code word live free. Save yourself 20%. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Miss Evo Love. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Check off. All right, let's give Miss Evo Love a call. Hello? Miss Evo Love, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, we have to pretend like we just didn't talk just now. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, hey, I want to thank you for, for taking the time and uh, stepping up for me, really, to to come and talk on the show. Uh, we, we, sort, we set this up, um, and it, it's interesting, the last guest that I had on the show, Lauren Napolitano, was uh, another female artist who stepped up and was was willing to talk with me. Um, and interestingly enough, I met her two years ago in Miami as well, which is where I met you. Yeah. And uh, 
I think uh, so. So two years ago, I linked up with the uh, the Montreal kids uh, in Mass, and uh, and went out there. And you had you had a booth at the Fountain Art Fair, which uh, the guys were working at. Is that you've been working with them for a while? Yeah. Um, I worked with them for three years, and I would do like two shows a year. And then one year I did three shows. Um, two shows were Miami Art Basel and Armory Week in New York. And then uh, one year they they ventured out into L.A. Pretty much when Deech took over the Mocha Museum over there, they started having a lot of art fairs and introducing the art fair market over there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we did L.A. with them and took the risk with them and I've done at least what two, four, six, seven, seven shows, eight shows. Which it's it's super cool. Like I, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Is like, what would it take for a group of artists to sort of take over a major art fair? And what I like about the the Fountain Fair is that it's like an artist ran, artist community type affair, as opposed to so much of like, the like highbrow gallery scene that we see at like basil like there's a different there's a different sense of uh community as opposed to just like a fucking meat market that you see at some of the bigger fairs is that that was one of the reasons i chose um fountain like when you know i was doing a lot of research on different galleries and heads in miami and you know, um, trying to get passed through the smoke and mirrors and see who was really doing stuff and had the collectors. And and so when the art fair situation came, me and my husband, Romain, we were already doing, um, you know, like uh, really guerrilla style street street fairs. You know, we started doing them before all the places like Scope and, and Art Miami popped up during um, Art Basel time. I think, you know, I'm not trying to be pompous or arrogant, but... I think once we were discovered under this bridge that we started doing these shows where we would run like 20, 120 feet worth of wall and paint them white and then set it up like a gallery, but outside underneath the bridge, I think it gave other people big ideas. And so the bigger kind of corporations and and businesses started seeing what we were doing on such a independent low scale that they said, oh, shit, well, if we dump like $100,000 into, you know, providing a, a big ass tent with a- AC, we could really start selling booths. And and that's kind of I'm not saying that me and Romaine were like the, the sole reason Art Fair started. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when Art Basel was introduced to Miami and the market out here, that we saw that, and as struggling artists and hustlers, we we kind of created our we we created something and we made our way out here. And by doing that, other people kind of you know found us by accident and had the money and maybe the means to do it on a larger scale, more corporate. Right. You know what I mean. Did you? Um, when did you notice that that change happening? Did you notice a shift? Like, oh shit, was it um, was it the Goldman uh, character? Probably the third year. Like the third year, we had Art Basel was in town. You know, I was getting snubbed by the, a lot of the galleries around here, and uh, I'm somebody that doesn't really take no for an answer. So, <laughs> um, when I got snubbed, I was like, "Fuck the galleries! I'll make my own way." And so. 
we just started doing truck and street shows. I do the truck show on a Thursday, have it outfitted on the inside with all the local artists that I was involved with that I really saw talent in and that were hustling just as much as I was. And I would take that truck and go literally to all the hot spots, to all the hot galleries during Art Basel. And I would bring the work to them rather than promoting the shit out of this show that nobody was ever going to come to because, you know, we didn't have clout like some of the other people or galleries in Miami. And it worked. And people copied that idea. I can definitely tell you people copied that idea because, uh, you know, we did it for four successful, five successful years. And then by the height of Art Basel and when all the other art fairs started, you know, really taking over Midtown and Wynwood, there was like six artists trying to rent trucks and show their work, you yeah. know, and which it wasn't a bad thing because sure. you want to inspire artists it, for me. I'll speak for myself here instead of, you know, speaking for everybody. For me, it was a, a really punk rock thing to do. You know, we weren't we there was no rules to it. You know what I mean? We would rent parking meters and actually set up like if we were a production for a film and we would rent these parking meters and we would build the wall and we would rent the truck and you know they didn't know what we were using the truck for so when people would ask us oh my god how did you do this we were very willing to tell you how we did this so you could go create this environment in your own city because you got to remember a lot of our visitors during that time and you know, art kids or, you know, mid-career artists, they hadn't seen anything like it, you know, and they weren't even hip to maybe doing this. So we would definitely promote the idea. Well, just we promoted it too much in our own town where now we have cops, you know, pulling us over and telling us they're going to arrest us if we don't have a permit to open up at, you know, South Beach during the major events over there. Right. So all, all my life and all my career has been pretty punk rock and guerrilla style. And like, you know, that's why it was so easy to um, get involved with Fountain because they let the artists do what they want. They're open to not only, you know, artists as, you know, sculpture artists or, you know, painters, but they DJs and bands and they were incorporating a little bit of everything into their their shows and really letting the artists do what they want. There wasn't many rules, you know. And plus it's so. a, a, a interesting little traveling circus. Which, it's kind of funny, coming from the West Coast, I would have never expected the scene that I sort of stumbled upon when I went to the, you know, the Basel Fair Week, or whatever it should be called. Since it seems Basel is such a limiting term for what is a much bigger um, sort of... It is, but I think, like, on an international level, when you say it, it just, like, you know the definition of it, you know? Like, yeah. you know what it entails, like, uh, especially now, because every year, it, it's getting bigger and bigger, and what's happening, I feel, just by an observer, is, like, now you have too many fucking art fairs going on, right. you know? And not everybody is... It's, it's like going to Walt Disney World today rather than going to Disney World 20 years ago. You went to Disney World 20 years ago, it was Disney World. <laughs> yeah. Now you go to Disney World and it's Universal, Epcot, Disney, and you can't see all of that shit in one day. 
you have to get a you know you have to be in a universal epcot uh for a whole week to to get on every ride and see everything that's going on in there yeah and so now you know art basel where it was such a positive thing for miami and it still is it's taking on a negative turn for artists because you know there's so many of these art fairs out here see art fair is successful no matter what because an art fair just sets up the the foundation they set up a place for you the gallery or the artist to show so they really take the money and run they already get paid yeah. they're not relying on you to sell a piece of artwork for them to make money so the effort in finding those collectors may be bigger or maybe smaller than usual depending on what art fair you get connected with right you know so art basel the convention center being the most connected internationally out of all the art fairs let's say yeah. you know yeah scope's getting notoriety now but before scope it was red dot before red dot it was you know what i mean art my you know it's like it's definitely taken a a, a big turn and now there's just so much so much going on it's not even that enjoyable you know and the artwork if you notice you'll go to all the fairs there's not one solid fair and the reason being is because what i mean by that is like when you go in i know like me and you will go to an art fair and we'll be like that work sucks what the fuck is that doing in here you know yeah. but that's that's just the art fair filling up the boots to make up the money because that person's going to pay eight thousand and up for that booth you understand right so you can see like you know where every booth is kick ass and you can't complain about any art like you don't really see that there's always the hit and misses in every art fair sure. you know because they're taking the money from some people just to have the money to fill up the space and they're taking money and giving breaks to other people who are known in maybe the art world and well collected and are going to bring the the collectors they want to see there. You see yeah. what I mean? It's like a trade off in a way. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and you know, I always think about that gamble that you know, being a professional artist is a gamble in and of itself. But there's certain gambles that people take, like like setting up a booth at an art fair. You're putting some money on the table and risks of the risk of possibly losing it, you know, in the hopes of, of doubling it, you know. To okay, well, this is this is an interesting thing. Uh, you know, and you make these investments, and, you know, what's great, getting back to Fountain, what's really great about Fountain is they make it accessible for smaller galleries and maybe solo mid-career artists to do their own thing, you know, and, and they're doing it for, like, 2500 to $3,000 for maybe a small space, right? Well, the other fairs, like we've mentioned before, like Scope and... Um, Art Miami and Art Winwood. Now we have this year. Art Winwood popped up, you know, last year or whatever after Basel. It's like the starting price for a wall is seven thousand dollars. You know what I mean? So, so crazy. If you if if you're trying to get in, okay, now who's sponsoring that? Well, if you're your own art gallery and you're not a, a rich doctor and lawyer that arts your hobby and you have a gallery and you could splurge 20 G's on a fucking booth, then it's no really problem right there. Yeah. But the problem for the mid-career artists who may be repping themselves until they get that right representation, that art agent or whatever you want to call it, it's harder because that shit's going on your MasterCard or your, you know, your, your, your own investor. 
So then now you invest and you're doing your, for instance, I'll use me as an example because it's real easy. Like I have Stash Gallery. So Stash Gallery is representing me, Evo Love. And that's my credit card that's sponsoring, you know, me and my husband's credit card that's sponsoring that. Okay, we dropped three grand. Now this comes into the picture. How good is the art fair you're in? Because if you're dropping three grand and they're guaranteeing and you know their clientele and their collectors list is solid, then you're going to make money back. Because, you know, who whoever doesn't like like outsider folk art will go buy the painting next to you in another booth, you know. But there's always somebody for everybody because of the, the creators and the producers of the art fair are going to make sure that if they're submitting work from an outsider artist, well, there's at least 10 outsider art collectors that are really big that's going to buy this work. Yeah. You see how that, that is? Now, where an art fair can suck for you is you can give them all the money and they think just putting it in the newspaper, promoting it on the radio, having a banner during Art Basel is enough and just rely on street traffic and collectors to hear about you and come to the show, depending on how connected they are. You know, I'm, right. I'm talking about like people that probably like, you know, do stuff with Sotheby's and Phillips and stuff like that, where they are eight, there are agents in a way they already have a clientele of collectors and they know what their likes and dislikes are. So they're going to, you know, put them, they're going to push them in the right place to the right art fair to go look for the right work. Right. You see what I mean by yeah, that? Like, yeah, sure. Now you do art, art like fountain and you know, you know that they're, and no, I don't want to speak bad about Fountain in any way because I think it's a very positive experience for people, sure. especially mid-career artists that are just getting into like the big art fairs because it really teaches you the business, you know what I mean? And, and, and you do have to be, every artist has to be their own agent whether they like it or fucking not. You understand? And a lot of these artists are lazy artists. They want to make great art. They want to make great art, but they don't want to promote the work. They yeah. don't want to hustle. They don't want to do the footwork and the legwork and the everything you got to do to get yourself out there. Like they, they go, oh, the, the galleries ain't coming to me. Well, oh, fuck this then. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> yeah. and those artists don't really have long shelf lives anyway. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it really weeds out artists too, in a sense. Like, you know, when you do these fairs and stuff, because it's like they might last one fair, but you probably won't see them on the next fair, you know, because yeah. they're all about the wrong, they have the wrong intentions. Yeah, you want to make money as an artist. Don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these artists that are like, I make art for the sake of making art. And I'm not, I, I don't need any financial, you know, fuck that shit. I'm an artist. I've been doing it for a long time. It's time to make money now. If it was my first, second year, yeah, I'm doing it because I love it, blah, 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 blah. But right now, like, I've mastered my craft and technique or my medium so now's when serious business comes in now i want to make money at it and now i want you know certain collectors it to be in certain important collectors homes you know and maybe some museums collections but art going back to you know i kind of get off track going back to the art fairs you know you think you you are taking big risk i just did a show with a gallery in la project gallery in LA with um, cartwheel a, a woman that does cartwheel uh, it's like a art art collective and you know even though they paid for us to go down 
and do the installation, we paid for the installation to be made. Yeah, they bought us tickets. Yeah, we have friends out there, so we're not going to dog out the gallery owner or the curators by saying, oh, you got to find a place for us to stay and stuff. Yeah. You know, I have friends. I'll stay at my friend's house, I'd rather, anyway. So you get out there, you're still spending money for the 11 days you're out there to eat for three times a day, to put gas in a rent-a-car, to pay for a rent-a-car with full insurance, because, you know, we're artists, that shit might, <laughs> busted window might happen, you know what I mean? Right. They might graffitied in a wrong neighborhood, who knows what will happen, <laughs> but, like, I still dropped three bones, $3,000, and didn't make, didn't sell one piece. Yeah. You know? So, it, here, you know, our Basil, I did our Basil with Fountain, it, you know, not one piece sold, you know what I mean? So, but last year, four pieces sold, five pieces sold. So, you know, it, 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 the thing that I think the misconception with a lot of people out and that are young like us and, you know, make career artists and like what, you know, there's always one out of the 10 of us that's doing really well. Like we'll have a famous graffiti artist friend or we'll have the famous painter friend. What they don't realize is, our famous friends don't have a bank account like Schnabel or Andy Warhol. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're tying in and they're connecting with a gallery that's going to start promoting their work and taking a risk with them. And guess what? Now when they sell work, half their money goes to that gallery or that curator. And, you know, for the most part, a lot of people are doing art fairs with these galleries. So they're both taking the risk. And you're thinking, oh, well, 15 pieces sold. This guy is fucking making millions. And he's not. He has to pay for all the flights, all the shipping. It's a split cost with somebody. And you think he's getting ahead and he's just barely making it like the struggling artist with no name. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's weird how that happens. Like we, There's these different layers of success, but all those layers of success all seem to be accompanied by the same problems just on a different scale yeah exactly and i would say to artists you know like that are making a name for themselves and that are getting approached by phillips and you know phillips is the more younger kind of auction house that deals with contemporary young artists i would say for all those artists that may be doing really well and selling pieces for five grand and up or 10 g's for a painting or whatever you know, if you do six paintings or six art pieces, right now is when you need to pull one aside for yourself and put it in storage because in 20 years, when your stuff or your career gets bigger or your work gets stronger or the the your work gets reintroduced into maybe a younger generation or older generation, now your work is being traded like trading like baseball cards and it's going for millions of dollars. That's when an artist has to have some of their own work so they could put it in the market and get finally paid for it, like the collectors are going to make. See, the collectors are the ones that make money off of art, not really artists. Yeah. You understand right. what I mean by that? I mean, we have street, the dynamics of the art world is changing every day because it's an evolving thing. But like right now, who's getting paid for art that's really big? Come on, try to name somebody. You're gonna name the first two people you'll probably name because you're in, you're in this like world that we are. It's like people like Bansky and Shepard Fairey who you know are putting out art books, who's got shit in museums, who's 
you know, but come on, name 10 more artists that are really that successful and you can't, you yeah. know, they're not on a commercial level like those guys. And, and this is the first time. And I think, I think if we were to talk to like somebody 70 years old or 80 years old in the art world and, and dealt with art history and seeing all this, they'd be like, this is the first time ever that graffiti artists and street artists are making fucking thousands and thousands of dollars for, you know, campaigns with corporate companies. Right. You know what I mean? And even those guys get fucked at first because back then they used to be like, oh, you're a graffiti artist now. Be graffiti is being a little bit more favored than hated. You know what I mean? And they're going, oh, dude, will you do the campaign for AT&T? Well, here, I'll hit you off with $1,000 to a 16-year-old kid who can really paint on a wall, and that's good enough. Well, now they're realizing these graffiti artists are getting fucking smart, and they're educated. And, honey, I'm not 16 years old doing a fucking wall and paying for all the paint. You're going to have to pay me 10 Gs if I release this kind of image for your campaign. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's getting like smarter. Back in the days, film crews can get a graffiti artist to do something for 75 bucks. Those guys <laughs> yeah. are way over. You know what yeah. I mean? So sort of going back, uh, you you talked about uh, the sort of laziness in some artists. Where where did you pick up your hustle? You, you know, you... You know, I think with me, you know... Or even your work ethic. When I first started doing art, I I just was, I've always been a person that has always had been able to express myself in a creative way. Back in the day, I thought I was going to be some famous poet because I was always writing and I'm a good writer and blah, blah, blah. I was doing a lot of spoken word poetry gigs and going on stage and people would ask me to come perform. So I definitely knew I had a talent there if people are asking me to do this. Um... I fell into art when I first moved to Miami. I, nobody would hire me over here. So I was like three months broke and, and I had a glue gun my mom gave me because she's really crafty, like with the reefs and the fucking, you know, like holiday, you know, makeovers sure. on pumpkins and shit. And I was like, what the hell am I going to do with a glue gun? I never thought <laughs> in my life I would be an artist, but because I was such a collector of vintage objects and, uh, and, and things of that sort, like trash and stuff, I would pull into my house just because it looked cool or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, I picked up this glue gun one day and I started gluing shit to a chair. And, um, you know, because it became a thing where I made like three of these pieces while I was out of a job. And somebody came over and said, you know, what you're doing is art. And I didn't have the confidence in calling it art because I was just kind of fucking around. You know what I mean? And yeah. so... It didn't really become a serious, like, it It turned from hobby to career, like, on the 15th year when I had mastered the thing I was doing, and I had experimented with it enough that it had, like, a message behind it. At first, I was just doing shit because it looked cool, and it was, you know, it was, I had this stuff available to me, and I just glued it on, and I made it look good, and I had good composition, but... Then it turned into something really important because of what I was using to express myself and the stories I was telling, I didn't realize I was telling these stories. It came like very organically to me. And then once I realized, you know, this is what I do. This is what I get great love from and I have, you know, great happiness from. I mean, 
you ask me that now, I have just as much as sadness and sorrow and depression from it. But, you know, it was something that was a constant in my life. And when I looked at my life on its totality, I said, this is a constant in my life. I should maybe pay attention to this because I keep on pushing it back like it's a hobby when it could be really something big for me. And when I would sell these pieces, I would sell it for a substantial amount of money. And I wouldn't believe that, you know, somebody would buy this for this much, but they were, you know, and, uh, you know, I had a really good mentor at the time too. I had a guy that kind of pulled the wool over my eyes in a way, but in a good way, not to hurt me. He kind of bought a piece, my third piece that I ever made. He bought off of me for 900 cash and he gave me 600 cash up front before even seeing the piece just because of the way I talked about it. Yeah. And he said, you know, you were so passionate about the way you were talking about this thing that you made that I could, I could just see it. Later to find out, he was a gallery owner in New Orleans for about 15 years and dealt with a lot of celebrities. And it was just like, you know, a, probably a Clive Davis looking at a girl who could sing at 15 and knowing she was going to be the next Whitney Houston. Right. You know, I didn't, he saw something in me I didn't even see. So then he nurtured that and then it made me take what I was doing more seriously. And then it became my my sole, you know, purpose in life in a way. It was something that I knew. I had tried to quit it before too. Like I said, fuck it, I'm not gonna be an artist because you know, when the business side of art starts coming in, it's a very depressing moment. When you're just doing it to do it, it's all fun, you're experimenting, you're finding yourself in your work, you're finding your voice. Well, now when you take it to the business level and you're talking about galleries and you're talking about collectors and you know, you're getting into the price and selling and then it be, it, you know, capitalism takes its ugly turn. It, it makes it, you know, now I do got to start promoting my work like a manager. Now I do have to, you know, before it's just making it. Now you got to learn how to promote it. Now you got to learn how to market it. Now you got to learn how to push it, you know, and that that's where a lot of artists fall off. You know, that's you got a, a bunch of art artists right now that are saying they're artists and they're being hipsters. But I guarantee if you go, hey, let me go to your house or your studio to see your work. Oh, well, you know, man, I only made three pieces. Well, guess what? You're not a fucking career artist. You know right. what I'm saying? That's not a career artist. Yeah. You know, so you can really tell the big boys from the little boys real quick in the art world just by that. Because uh, you got to get into the business side if you really want to be you know, hustling in the art world. You have to learn about the business side. No matter, nobody wants to do a press release. Nobody wants to fucking do a biography or a, a you know, a fucking, uh, what, do, what do you call it, uh, the, the portfolio? Yeah, it's a pain in the ass for everybody. But guess what, honey? It's your work. You gotta do it. Nobody yeah. else is gonna do it for you. You know what I mean? Even even when somebody gets picked up and they're having that shit done for them, like let's say Cryptic right now has a, a team that does all his promoting, he still had to get himself somewhere before they picked him up. You right. understand? Yeah. That you know, doing this podcast was part of that same kind of thinking. Like I was noticing that comedians were using uh, podcasting as a way to sort of let people in on their personality and in turn sort of show a different side of their performance work that they do. And I thought, like, what a perfect uh, platform for artists to do the same thing because 
it's so stereotypical that artists are thought of as like quiet introverts that don't want to deal with society. I mean, to, I guess to some extent we are that, but the, that implies that we can't talk about the things that we do or like express ourselves verbally. Like we have to use this this uh, visual language to express ourselves, and I find that that's totally not the case. That the people who have a lot of time to sit and think usually have a lot of fucking shit to talk about. Oh yeah, and you know I, you know I get a bad rap in Miami. I think sometimes because I'm a really outspoken person, and you know I tell it like it is, and I, I don't really give a fuck if you like it or not. It's the truth, you know. So when you truth, like I just watched a documentary on Tupac, who's like one of my favorite people, and uh, you know I love the bad and the good about the guy, and. One thing is to be said, I watched this documentary about his last 24 hours of his life and how one of his friends was talking about him and describing him as a truth to power person. So when you speak truth to power, they don't like that shit. You understand? Like when you tell the truth, to, like if I was to sit there with some of the people from Art Basel, they might not like me after I leave. You know what I mean? If I go and talk to Bonnie Clearwater at Mocha, she might not like me after I leave because I have a lot of opinions about things. And, and then how they'll attack me. Well, well, you don't have a master's degree in art. You know, you're an outsider artist. What the fuck do you know? Well, motherfucker, I'm like a Buddha. I pay attention to the patterns and the, you know, the waves of the ocean here. And, you know, I see things like, you know, out of my perspective by just observing all the time and really researching. You know, a lot of these artists that move down here to Miami and think, uh, I've been told this in the last two years. I'm going to move to Miami because, man, Miami's pumping and artists are making it. And, oh, man, you guys got it made in, my, in Miami. There's all these art fairs and everybody's sell. No, dude, that's all smoke and mirrors. Don't be moving to Miami for that shit because you're going to be sadly disappointed when you get here. You know, it's like, you know, the people that are the movers and shakers here or are so-called claimed to be the movers and shakers just really, what are they moving and shaking? Who's paying attention to that? Who's doing yeah. the real research on that? I want to you know? move to Miami just for um, the Cuban soup. Oh, yeah. And probably the Cuban ass, too. Don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think... I'm saying. It's like, you know, there, you know, you really have to do research on everybody that you get connected with. And going back to the beginning of our conversation was how did I pick, you know... Fountain. I picked Fountain because I saw the same thing you did in Fountain. It was a very organic kind of family, kind of family feel. Like everybody's an artist looking out for artists, and nobody's gonna put a muzzle on the loud dog. You know, they're gonna they're gonna let you do what you want, and if that shocks, and if that uh, you know gets somebody upset or or pisses somebody off, well, that's what art is. You know, right. so. You know, you go to Scope, I doubt you'll you'll have or, or, you know, I'm just using Scope because it's just like a popular one to name that everybody kind of knows. Is, yeah. You know, you go and do some shit at Scope and you go and put a, a chainsaw, you know, performance piece with a guy running around with a chainsaw. I don't know how good that's going to fly at Scope or Art Basel, the convention center, yeah. you know, that you could do at Fountain. So and that's another reason why I picked Fountain is because 
they were one of the fairs that were really paying attention to performance art and taking it serious. Like, you know, performance art is art and it needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be preserved and it needs to be encouraged. And so that was another great thing about it. It had all the ingredients for me because I love graffiti art, which I get a hard time for through some of the, you know, upper crust kind of aristocratic kind of art people in the world, you know, that are art. Oh, that graffiti. You know, it's like kind of the same people that said hip hop was not going to happen and it happened. You know what I mean? Like they really gave street art and graffiti artists a hard time. But now it's so accepted. You know what I mean? But you know what, though? People still hate tags. And I think tags are maybe the best thing that has come out of any type of graffiti or street art. You know what I hate tag? Why I hate tags? I love them. I know you love them, and my husband loves them, too. He loves them. And the reason why I hate them is because... And I hate such a strong word. It's not that I hate them. Right, It's that so visual, and I love things to be perfect and pretty sometimes. And I can appreciate raw, dirty shit, too. But it still has to have some kind of great composition in it for me to like it. And I think with tags, like, there has to be some unwritten, you know, there's an unwritten law in the graffiti world that only graffiti artists know, you know. And I think that... You know, some live by no rules, but there are rules. And I think that when you're tagging a fucking church or you're tagging a fucking nursery school, that's wrong. You know, I agree. now if I you want to go tag the guy that has the majority of real estate in this town and is being a fucking capitalist douchebag where he's like overcharging everybody and high rents and pushing all the people out that made the area cool, which is usually the local artists, DJs and what have you like. Yeah, tag that guy's shit up. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But what I don't like about tags, like, and this is just the scribbles on the wall. What I don't like about them is it gives graffiti artists or street artists a harder time as being taken seriously as an artist. Yeah. That's the problem with tags to, like, if you want to get to the art world, not the graffiti artist that's like antisocial and you know anarchy and fucking going against government and the you know society like if you take that out of it because there are some lunatics like that but if you take those people out of it it's like why not put something because most of these kids are very talented you know they're just not graffiti artists you know they're making paintings when they go home at night every night which we can get into a whole nother level like taggers usually aren't great artists they're the guy that could do the three letter ta- like the three letter, you know, uh, I'll just use like reef for an example. Oh, I'm going to write reef real pretty with bubbles in it. Or I'm going to do bubble letters of reef with pretty colors and it's going to look good. Okay, that's great. But what else can you fucking do? Yeah. See, that's what, that's what like graffiti, I know how it started and all this stuff, but nowadays, like as an art form, graffiti's considered an art form to some. And it's like that that percentage, whether it's the 30 percent of the art world that considers it an art form, it's hurting them because it's just showing this really shitty scratch on a wall. Do something really good with that space you have on the wall in the time that you're taking out to fucking almost get arrested and go to jail. You should be doing things that are going to either make a person scratch their head and go, why did they put that thing on there? What was the meaning of this? It gets me thinking or something, right? It's playing with my mind. But seeing just like 
tag, tagged on a wall, T-A-G and scribble, it's bullshit. I don't like it. And I think it's, it also shows like, it's almost like a reflection of the artist that's doing it because they're not taking the initiative to do something really great for me to see. Yeah. I I think a lot of times that, and I, I talked to Omen about this recently, uh, for his podcast and it's like, it's where's the intention and sort of where are the defining lines? Like, when I think about graffiti, I think about a kid walking down a block and catching tags the whole way through and, like, just being on a sort of destructive, like, robotic mindset. And then I, I don't so much think of graffiti now as, like, big production pieces on a wall anymore. Or, like, I think of it yeah, as, like, throw up. And a, in a construction like, like I grew up when, you know, I was riding subways in New York with my aunt and I was seeing like characters that were, you know, they would use recognizable characters like Pac-Man or something and the little ghost that went along with Pac-Man. And, you know, I would see beautiful colors and, and a lot of tagging in the subways in the sure. 70s when I was riding them. It was just tag fest, you know. Did you grow up and in New York? Shit, um, I grew up there until I was nine. Yeah, my aunt used to work for ABC News for Howard Cosell, and she used to take me on the subways right. into the city. And you know, I would see all. I would. I, I was fascinated by it as a kid. You know, it was eye candy to me. And as I got older, and hip hop evolved, and graffiti evolved, you know, it was a part of my culture. I I felt like, you know, I really embraced it. And you know, back in the day, I used to give graffiti artists shows like a, a lot of the damn crew, members of the damn crew, you know, that were 15, 16 years old. I was having them do stuff at, you know, a warehouse that I was the creative, you know, director of the warehouse and setting up walls that they could shoot catalog work, you know, like for, you know, Banana Republic or something like that, you know, catalogs for these people. They'd have backgrounds for, you know what I mean? Um it wasn't really accepted, and I was the only person really reaching out to these guys and saying, hey, let's do something with this. You're talented. You definitely are doing something good. Let's try to get you something like commercial gigs, anything. I was trying to get them paid. And that was another interest for me is like I was like mother hen over these graffiti artists because <laughs> even though they were 16, 17 years old – I wanted them to make money. It wasn't just you're going to take this little kid and tell him to go paint whatever you want and, and feed him lunch. No, you're going to fucking give him a couple hundred bucks. You know, now that graffiti is a little bit more on the commercial side because, you know, all these major corporations are using it as their campaigns to promote their products. Sure. Now it's big business. Yeah. You know, it's it's not so much, you know, they just, you know, if you want to get into copyright laws, Back in the day, because I was really interested in copyright, and back in the day, you know, you couldn't take a photo of some graffiti artist's work without a, a release form, you know, but now they've changed the laws to work in the favor of the corporations, not the artists. Now that if it's on a wall, oh, it's free public, it's public use, it's free public use if it's on an outside wall. You know, but if it's an interior wall, that's different. But it's, you know, it's never in favor for the artists. Even when artists do like art gallery shows, they always think, oh, well, I'm protected. No, you're not fucking protected. That contract you're signing is protecting the gallery, not the artist. Yeah. You know, I think and that, so. that's an interesting dichotomy. And I talk about that on the show a lot. Like the difference between this sort of moralistic, pure intent of the creation of art and then the sort of non-moralistic uh capitalistic intentions of making money 
in the regular business world, let's say that we owned a burger shop instead of making art, like what methods would we take as an individual business owner to... Well, you do, you do what I did. I took a truck. I put all my artwork in it. I said, okay, fuckers, you're not going to let... You're not going to show my work. You're not going to accept my artwork as an art form. Okay, guess what? Well, I'm going to take a truck and I'm going to rent it and I'm going to park right in front of your nice, pretty show that you catered and you invited a bunch of collectors to. And I'm going to pop open the fucking back of this thing and I'm going to walk people on this truck and they're going to like this stuff. <laughs> they're going to buy it. See, so you got to kind of fight power with power because, like, I am a capitalist in a sense, and I believe in like a healthy way of capitalism, not like this greedy. I need more, 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 and I, you know, yeah. I get, I'm a very like balanced person when it comes to, you know, like like you said, if I if there was a pizza shop down the road, I'm not going to open up a pizza shop. I'm going to open up a bagel shop instead. Right. I'm still going to open something up. And I'm still going to try to make money just like you, but I'm not going to try to dog you out or do it in a in a vicious way. Like, I'm not going to open up the same exact burger shop and call it Ted's instead of Fred's. But what, and what I'm thinking about is, like, even, like, the making of the work. So, you know, you you're you're not really... The intention of making the work usually is is much more involved than just say making money whereas maybe oh, if you yeah, had a burger shop you're just making burgers to make money you do want to make the yeah. best burger you can but i it's well, the same it's thing it's kind of like my work like i know you've seen my work it's still not quite accepted as it should be in the art world you know it, it's like you know, well, people compare me a lot to Joseph Cornell, but our work is so different. If you look up Joseph Cornell's work and you look up my work, it's completely different work. You know? Do you want to describe maybe a little bit for, for the people that aren't familiar with what you do? Like well, what, my work is three-dimensional, and it has um, collage in it, and sometimes I use fabric, but I, I really uh, do my pieces on old vintage um, soda crates and old school chairs and old lamps and stuff like that. And um, I mentioned use very, I, I use objects that are very like uh, historical, like have a history behind it that are vintage and antique to tell a story, you see? So there's a lot of storytelling going on with objects that's, that are, you know, some, they're, they're, they're telling the story through symbolism, so to speak. Do you so, mentioned you know, your... You, that you were collecting stuff from an early age. Can you what what what's your collecting process like? Because a a lot of the imagery that in objects that show up in your work, like sometimes it's hard to tell if they're made specifically for something, if they're found, if they are vintage, if they're new. Like there's a there's a sort of well, discombobulation. Yeah, like I combine the two. What I, what I found is the toys are getting cooler now that we have all these graffiti artists out, you know, then the, the companies like Kid Robot pick some up and they do toys that are collectible and they'll be collectible probably 50 years from now. Who knows, you know? Mm -hmm. So I try to use those things that are from the past that were really collectible. Like, for instance, I'll give you an easy example. Charm bracelets were a big thing and probably like the 30s and 40s you know mothers would have these gold bracelets and they would add a charm for each kid they had or something right so i'll take those break those apart use them in the art and then sitting beside that might be a kozik buddy with a cigarette sticking out of his mouth you know so i'm using 
contemporary collectibles as well as vintage collectibles in my work. And if I'm, I'm, I'm merging the two to the two worlds. So I'm like it's almost like I'm trying to grab the older audience that's gonna remember this object from back this pencil shop sharpener maybe from back in the nineteen twenties to the person that is uh, 10 years old, 11 years old and collects Angry Oranges because the TV show Angry Oranges is out. You see right. what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's something that in which and, and the work also has a lot of double meanings to it too because the Angry Orange could be I'm an Angry Orange living in the sunshine state with angry people around me or it could play on the kids loving the show Angry Orange in this generation, this new yeah. generation coming up. So, you know, the it's very intelligent work I do, even though I think it's taken um, not so seriously by people because they don't read into it enough. They they see a bunch of toys put together in, in very, a very great way or the composition's really good, but they don't really quite understand what they're looking at, you know? And I don't like to tell really people what they're looking at. I kind of like for you to look at my work and you try to figure out what I'm trying to tell you. You try to figure out the history behind the objects. And, it, you know, nothing specifically made for me because Kid Ro Robot isn't asking me to do pieces with all their, you know, nobody's making toys for me. I wish I was at that level like Chris Cousy, I think his name is, that, uh -huh. you know, melts toys down. He's an incredible artist. Um, and, and again, my style is a lot different than his, you know. Uh, his is like very gothic and dark looking, whereas mine is very vibrant and like eye candy. It's like, you know, a bubblegum machine. You know, there's so many colors in my work where he keeps his work like in the grays, and the dark greens, all one, you know, color. And he and did still a, um, with toys, you know, that dude did a, uh, an episode of the Saturated Life podcast, which I, if listeners of my show. If people like this show, they would probably like that show as well. He did a really cool interview over there that I listened to recently. Um, yeah, I, I'm I wondering. Heard him, but I've seen his work a lot, and I admire it. You know. Yeah, I had never, I've never met him before either, and it was cool to sort of hear his story. I'm curious if, like, the collecting of these objects does it become a sort of personal history lesson for you? Like, oh, I, I find artists. Time, man. It's like you know. Some of the shit I've put on some of the, the work, you know, I, I won't know where it came from or what the hell it is until, like, you know, some 75-year-old vintage deal collector, you know, uh, vent, uh, antique dealer will come by and go, you know what you just put on your piece is, like, worth a hundred and something dollars and it was used <laughs> back in the – that's why my work is really expensive. Like, I know people take a look at the price list and their eyes pop out, but – um for some reason, the European market really appreciates the vintage items I use. And I get, I, I really, my collectors are usually from out of the country because they appreciate the, the uh, Americana, the Americana tchotchke stuff that, you know, we've had through our, you know, what, 40, 50 years, you know, the, yeah. the stuff they use to like, you know, I got, I'm looking at a Zulu, Lulu uh, mixers that were all black women with big butts and tits. And, you know, and back then that was considered really fucking racist. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, but back then, I mean, they could get away with that shit. They couldn't yeah. get away with no mixers like that these days. You Which, know what I mean? That reminds me, I think our first meeting, we all rode over uh, to your house and we were talking about the, um, the vintage uh, cast iron bottle openers, the racist ones that came oh, out. Yeah, yeah. 
There's, yeah. I think you had one of the Japanese ones, right? Yeah, and I, I don't really. There's some shit that I collect that I won't put in work, not because of its, uh, because you know, I'm, let let me tell the audience right now, um, I'm mixed. I'm Puerto Rican, German, and Native American Indian. So you know, you're never white enough, you're never black enough, you're never Spanish enough. So I've dealt with racism on my own terms for so long, and and so like. I, I wouldn't necessarily not use it because it was, a, but what I try to do with those racist objects is bring like the silver lining into the picture. So like if I use like uh, black Americana, which is a lot of like, you know, black people with watermelons, I'll try to change the idea of it into a positive rather than the negative way it was used before. Yeah. You know and what art I mean? has art has this this strange capability of taking the things that we can't seem to talk about in everyday society or accept or just kind of ignore and really just throw them in people's faces and there's almost a level of taking away some of the power of it. Like like there is like by exactly. yeah by talking yeah. about it, it takes away some of the sting, maybe yeah, some of yeah. the. Like, and I guilt. try to definitely, you know, uh, last year with my show at uh, Fountain and Armory, that was like a year ago, in March. You know, my whole installation that year was Native American Indian. Well, you know, I did like a very country western kind of like thing going on uh installation kind of to set and feature my work and show my work and you know native american indians i mean in general there's they're so like pushed to the side and nobody wants to talk about that ugly shit you know and I, i really embrace like this year i did a series on the native americans and you know i i really i'm trying to keep that alive you know what i mean that you know it's important part of our culture native american indians you know and it's very like you said like i'll grab pieces and i i start it's almost like i'm becoming a historian because i learn so much about the objects and what they're made of and when they stopped making them like this and when they started making the cheap shit and you know you learn so much from the work you're doing it's like a history lesson every time you pick up an object yeah and how great is it when once you know about a particular object how like a a whole new world opens up where you sort of understand things in a new context oh yeah well i'll give you an example like uh you know i I go to a lot of vintage fairs and stuff and uh you know art uh vintage marts you know where it'd be a bunch of booths and they're selling vintage items and uh i I really got into uh, when my grandparents died my 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 aunt sent me their ashes and i thought wow you know what am i going to put this in like i got ashes of dead people like what am i going to do with my grandparents you know and you know i don't have an urn so i go looking up urns right and it introduced me to i went from urns and looking at urns to going you know what I don't have to put my grandparents' ashes in urns. I can put them in these things called ugly jugs. And ugly jug art is a a southern type of art um, that started up in, like, Georgia, Alabama, the Carolinas and stuff. It was introduced to me by a friend who was a collector of them. And they were like these jugs that a father and son would do pottery and they would make these ugly jugs like with ugly faces on the front of the jugs because it was said that the jug captured an evil spirit and that's the face that would come out of the bottle 
you know, because he was stuck in the bottle kind of thing, like a genie stuck in a bottle, you uh -huh. know, but a bad genie. So, uh, you know, it got me thinking, man, I should put my grandparents' ashes in these ugly jugs and with character and art, uh, you know, it had an, an expression in it. It's a tradition. It's this, this, this. It has history to it rather than a fucking gold urn for $1,200 that yeah. had no character and looks like a thing off a spaceship. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I was looking at the bronze or the gold ones and stuff. Yeah. You know, and then from there, it went into, well, how did people like uh, keep their dead ancestors alive in that way? And I got into hair jewelry back in the day. Uh, they used to take your hair, like if you were from a really debutante aristocratic family, they would take your hair, cut your hair off and make a ring out of it. So your grandma would be on your, you'd be wearing her on your finger or on a brooch. It's so crazy that you bring that up because I, I mentioned Lauren in the, who was on my last episode and how we met both, both of you sort of stepped up and both of you I met in Miami. She fucking collects jars and jars of hair because of this this same reason, and uses yeah, them in her work. And then you go and look at the rings, and then you realize they made fucking bracelets, they made necklaces, they made. I mean, it was just so. It, you start learning so much, and then it takes you to another place where you're going with dead people and how they used to, you know, honor them after they died and what they would keep as their mementos. So you know. It, it's definitely um, it's definitely very interesting and very educating. And I hope that, you know, one day when somebody's looking at my work that they go, wow, you know, because like I told you, I've been snubbed for most of my career. They go, wow, you know, this was some really intelligent shit that we kind of slept on, you know, when, you know, let's say maybe a generation 20 years from now discovers my work and goes, hey, man, you guys slipped because this girl was, you know, really doing things. And, and you got to think it's a lot harder to express yourself through objects than through paint. You know yeah. what I mean? There's I a lot more boundaries. Way. Yeah, I feel that way. And I'm, you know, as an artist, I haven't. I haven't gone into painting yet. I, it's something that I do crave and I do wish to do that one day. But I really like the medium that I do because one of the biggest things I always hear is I've never seen anything like it before. Yeah. You know, and, and the only other person they can compare me to is Joseph Cornell, who I'm so far from Joseph Cornell's work because he used a lot of bronze and copper and things in its natural state where I use a lot of color in my stuff mm -hmm. you know like if i pick an object it's not going to be a white or black object it's going to be an object with five different colors in the object you know it's it's i really how i pick it and, and it's definitely like sometimes i have a theme in my head like i just did this series on um superstitions who are the most superstitious people ever it's sailors you would have thought it would have been more people in sports, but that's individual superstitions sports people have. Yeah. When it comes to a thing where everybody's superstitious about the same thing, the the people that I found were the most superstitious were sailors. And they had uh, about 30 different superstitions, good and bad, that you can do on a boat and you should do, do on a <laughs> boat and you shouldn't do on a boat. So, like, I did this series on sailors and um, – 
you know, again, you learn a lot of history about sailors and what they find to be superstitious. So then you go out seeking certain things for that piece that has to do with sailor superstitions. But then there's other times where I'll go out and I'll see something like an old Indian doll or an old um, uh, creamer from back in the 50s, and I'll work a story around that object. Yeah. You know what I mean? Rather than have a theme in mind, uh, I'll create a theme or a story for that object that I'm using. And that sort of goes so, back to your writing, right? Like it just and that's you know you mentioned wanting to get into painting, and it's like creative types are are always getting into multiple different facets to use to to be creative. Whether even if it's dance, uh, you know, performance, or even like practicing a sport, it's it's really all the same thing. Yeah, like I have a lot of what I've noticed because I've been around the the film industry for a long time and I've been around a lot of people that were famous in their fields, whether it was, you know, uh, sports or modeling or acting or whatever. What I notice is all creatives always have about four different things they're really good at. You know, like uh, I have a friend right now that's an actor who's a great photographer. You know what I mean? And a lot of people don't know him for his photography. They know him for his acting. I have another friend that works in the film industry that's a camera girl who is a great photographer. You understand? So, like, I think creatives, like, and, and then, you know, this bitch sings Mary J in the car with me, like, if she's Mary J. You know, <laughs> you know um, yeah. I think creative people or people, I think everybody has creativity in them. And I think everybody's field has a certain art to it. Like uh, carpenters, there's an art to that. You know, there's shitty carpenters and then there's carpenters that can build a fucking house and all the cabinets and all the, and use a particular kind of wood and take pride in that wood. And, you know, everybody has their art, like a producer of TV shows, you know, it's an art form. Everything to me, I look at as an art form. It's just, are you a good artist or are you a bad artist? It's just like doctors. Are you a, a doctor that's like a scientist and being innovative and trying to cure shit? Or are you just the run of the mill doctor prescribing pills just to, you know, get me out of your face? You know what I mean? So there's art in everything. It's just, you know, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. No, I think that's that. That's a beautiful point. I think I think that's a perfect spot to end on. You know? Yeah. Okay, great. You know, like, okay, then. That's good. good. Well, no, I yeah. think yeah, that's a that's a good spot. We got an hour. You feel good well, about that's it? That's great. And I hope I I didn't bounce around like a a girl on heroin. No, I, I think this may have been one of the easiest interviews I've done so far. Wow, that's great. I hope you have me back one day. And don't think I'm snubbing you. You know, this house is open. <laughs> yeah, I was just being a sensitive artist. You know, yeah. But whatever you want to talk about, like. Um, you know, I'd really love to get into a discussion with women in art, you know, because uh, I think we're like the fucking low man on the totem pole, you know, and not enough of us are out there and getting acknowledged the way we should. And, you know, it's a man's world, baby. You yeah. know, and, well, I it think needs to be, it I needs think, to be discussed more. I know? think just what you discussed on this this episode in terms of your hustle and like what you do to promote yourself is 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 good for both male and female artists. And I think in the last episode we talked about it too, like 
it, how much of it is participation, how much of it is oppression, how much of it is um, a willingness to put yourself out there, how much of it is somebody who's lazy and somebody who's not lazy, somebody who somebody who's willing to take gambles and somebody who's not willing to take gambles, regardless well, of gender. The one thing I would like to say to all artists, male or female, especially female, is that, you know, you don't take no for an answer. If you really want to make shit happen, you're going to make it happen. And it isn't going to be this excuse that a man's holding you back or that this person's holding you back or, you know, it, it's it's easy. And I'll, I'll, I'll say it in layman's terms. Uh, you could be a great fucking singer. You could be the next Aretha Franklin. But if you sit in your house and you don't put yourself out there, you're Aretha Franklin in your house. <laughs> Nobody's going to discover you like that. And you can go out there and and try to be discovered, but you got to be really careful, too, because there's a lot of, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. And on that, you have to do your research. So don't rely on everything somebody's telling you. Go and really research the, the people that are telling you what they could do for you. You know, um, the art world has changed, though, and that's what you got to realize is that. You know, there's this dynamic that used to be that if you made it in a New York gallery, you were a famous artist and you're going to get paid millions. That's kind of changed now. You know what I mean? Those yeah. those there's those galleries are few and far between. And um, it's like just like independent uh, musicians, you know, people got tired of the fucking record companies and they started creating their own. It's the same with an artist. Now you got to kind of look at yourself like the MC hammer of the art world. You got to be able to sell the CDs out of the back of the trunk until you can get the the deal that you're looking for and start producing the work and getting it on international level. Which you now know, we have we have that great equalizer that is the internet. Yes, and that's what you know. The internet's really changed a lot of people's careers. You know, from singers, dancers, musicians, you name it. You know, yeah. because you can, it can be. You know, it's the catch twenty two of everything. It could be used for good or it could be used for bad. Well, you know, people give me hard time. I'm on Facebook. I'm on MySpace. I'm on this. I'm on that. I'm like, yo, man. You're the controller of what you put out there into the universe. If Facebook sucks dick for you, it's because you made it that way. You know what I mean? I'm not posting my personal shit on Facebook. I'm using it as a tool to promote my artwork and what I believe in. You understand? And right. and that's what people need to realize is when you're not taking – if I took – you know, first of all, I'm Puerto Rican. Second of all, I'm a woman. You know, there's been a lot of oppression against, you know, sure. people of different color and, and women for, you know, centuries. Yeah. But the great women of the world make their own rules. This is why Madonna's huge. That girl – and I love Madonna. If she ever hears this, Madonna, I love you. But she's not Aretha Franklin. You understand? And for a woman like that to get so big and have such a solid career in the music business, it's because she was a risk taker. She knew to reinvent herself. She knew that, you know, you got to kind of move with evolution and you got to evolve just as much as the world's evolving around you. So if you're one of these artists that are a mid-career artist and you're acting like a cave woman where, oh, I don't do Facebook and I don't promote my work on here and I don't do this. Well, guess what? It's going to be a lot harder for you to make it in this world because you you need technology. You need to be, you know, in bed with technology in order to get your work out there, especially on an independent level, not even, 
you know, I'm not talking about somebody who's like, you know, Andy Warhol and has a foundation and a website and fucking, you know, probably 150 people working, you know, to make Andy Warhol still relevant in this time way after he's dead. Yeah, you know? sure. Well, where can we send uh, listeners to check out some of your stuff? Um, you could send them to stashgallery.com, which is always under construction because I have such the hardest time getting website designers and people to be on point with my, my websites because, you know, it's a little harder for me to do. A very but, common um, artist trait, I find. Uh, yeah, and, and everybody can find me on Facebook because I, I love Facebook, you know what I mean? I love uh, – I don't put all my work on Facebook but I'll let you know what events I'm involved in and, and what art fairs I'm showing at or galleries I'm showing at and, and promote, you know. Okay, cool. And we've been yeah. – uh, well, I'll do a blog that has all those links on it. And uh, when you have new stuff coming up, uh, you got anything in the works that you're that you're working on that we could promote in the future? Right no, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in – I just did a show in L.A. and introduced right. the work to, to, to L.A. again. This is my second time doing it. One was at art fair, now it's at art gallery. Um, we're trying to set up uh, some kind of gallery to show the work when I'm down there in June, but nothing's on lockdown, and I'm too superstitious to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear it totally. When you, when you say stuff that's going to happen and it's not solid and signed and, 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 and set in stone, then you might lose the energy to it and jinx it. You know, That and happens so. so often on my podcast. I'll say something's going to happen and then it just loses all the juice. Yeah, it loses all the mojo. So I keep it the mojo in and I just keep it like I'll get like, don't call me. I'll call you and let you know what's going on yeah. as soon well, as it happens. I'll definitely keep track, and whenever um, anything comes up, I'll, I'll post that on the, yeah, the free and, podcast and definitely, page. definitely, if you're doing, like, this stuff with women and artists, I'd really love to be a part of that because, you know, I'd love to, you know, not only talk about women and art, but also introduce the art world to some of these art women they're sleeping on out here, you know, that are really doing cool shit and not being really recognized like the rest of the, the dudes of the art world, sure. you know? Sure. Uh, what was? Uh, let me say one last thing to you. Yeah. You know, this do, doesn't have to be for the show or anything, but you know, when I went to LA, I got to check out Shepard Fairey's gallery. He just opened up, and what I, you know, Shepard gets so much shit. They they love talking shit about Shepard all the time. Oh, he's commercial. Sure. Oh, he's sold out. Ah, blah 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 blah. Well, dude, I'm not in this world to be a broke, starving artist. I'm in this world to be a successful artist and make enough money to where I can eat, live, and, you know, do my art. I'm not asking for a gazillion dollars. Well, I go to Shepard's show. I don't know if it's the first show he's done at this gallery or not, but what was very refreshing about it is when I got there, I thought, oh, great, I'm going to see all these dudes art, you know, that he work, runs Brainwash or this guy or that, you know, these kind of heads in his show. And it was two women that were showing at his uh, gallery. And mm -hmm. I found that very fucking cool. So now I am a big supporter of Shepard Ferry because, you know, I well, thought it was way cool that he's really repping women's work. You know what I mean? You don't find a lot of people really like the gallery's totally dedicated to two women or it's a solo female show is what I'm trying to say. You know, we get in there on group shows where there's one girl out of five guys in the show. You know what I I'll mean? I'll let you in on a little secret. He has a pretty um, strong wife, a pretty uh, uh, empowered type of woman is for a wife. So that that may have something to do with it. 
Well, I, it makes me feel good because Romaine does too, my husband, mm -hmm. and he lets me be who I am. And what I love about him is he's pro-female, you know what I mean? So it's it's refreshing to see, you know, Shepard has, that's something you see. And when you see something like that, that's a part of their soul. It's almost like uh, something revealing a part of their soul. Sure. Like, you know, this guy, and he's you looking know, out for us. I was capping Shepard in Miami last year uh, because he was talking shit, but uh, he's one of those dudes that uh, works harder than anybody else I've seen work. Like, I was his assistant for two years before he got, like, Obama yeah. famous, and so I got to see how many hours that motherfucker puts in, and it's pretty impressive. It's, it's almost psychotic, but impressive. Yeah, but that's what I mean. That's what yeah. I was telling you about, you know, a lot of these artists that tell you, oh, they get in your face and they're like, oh, what do you do? I'm an artist. Oh, yeah, let me go by the studio, see some of your work. And you get there and there ain't shit to look at but a sketchbook, you know. <laughs> it's like, that's why, you know, when, you know, for instance, my husband doesn't like Kanye West. Um, I don't know if I like him as a person or not because I've never met him, but, you know, he always takes shots at his, some of his songs and stuff. And, sure. and I'm like, you know what? This guy worked hard to get where he is, and that is what you should be respecting is the hustle because there's a lot of shitty singers out there or great singers out there that haven't even made it to his level of success. And the reason why is they didn't put the work in or they get the ego before they even get the shot. You and, know, you know, you that's something I've been thinking about that quite a bit lately. And I, I the, just recently, I, I proclaimed a percentage that it's um, – 40% hard work and 60% luck. Yeah, and that's you're pretty right on about that because, you know... You, like right place, right time, right yeah, time period. There's certain artists, I don't want to drop names because I got enough haters as it is, but there's some <laughs> artists out here, I look at their work and I'm like, really, this motherfucker's in the Phillips catalog? Really? With this bullshit? You know, and then people can always have a meaning and explanation behind work because it's art. You could say whatever the fuck you want about art and make it say it. What I notice, if you're a good car salesman, then you'll be a good successful artist <laughs> because if you can talk shit and you can make this sound like you can't leave without it, then you're going to be very successful. You have to have that car salesman kind of mentality and like lingo and like, you know, the, the, the hustle of selling your work like that. You know, like I, I almost feel like, and this is a little secret into the art world. I feel like, you know, we're all looking for these art agents and we're all looking for these, you know, what we need to do is go to the fucking best car salesman in the fucking state of Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Get them educated and give them the lingo to the art world and have them sell some fucking art because, you know, the people that are saying they're important or that they're making these moves, I'm telling you, when you look at the, the facts, how much work sold during Art Basel from this one gallery or that one gallery and who's buying what type of work, you know, you start seeing the logistics a little differently that – you know, no, they're not very successful at being a dealer. You know what I mean by that? Like, yeah, yeah they have a lot of great shows, but who who the fuck's making money? Perception Nobody. is a motherfucker for sure. Yeah, you know, and it's smoke and mirrors. A lot of it's yeah. smoke and mirrors, smoke and mirrors. You just got to hope that that one person that's totally in, and you know, the real art collectors and dealers, it's only like 
15% of the totality of pe the population you see down here, you know, like our Basil, they don't even realize that a lot of these major collectors that are in the billionaire, millionaire status and probably the Tea Party, they're in and out of Basil before Basil even starts, you know, because they already, they're VIP status. They're already, they already see the show before the show gets open to the public. Yeah. So they already buy the work before us common folk or laymen are out in the shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. And pretty much when arts, Art Basel starts, Art Basel's really over in terms of the real collectors who are out here and have uh, come in and out and, and got out and on to the next art fair. You understand what yeah. I mean by that? It's yeah. like they come in for three days, they do serious business, they spend serious money, and they're fucking out. And then their assistants party for the rest of the week. And it's, you know, it's the same thing with like the stock market. Like the people who know the good deals to get in to get the pieces that are going to make them the money or the stocks that are going to make them the money get in there first. Then all the laymen throw money at shit that they're just going to lose. You know, yeah. Not to and make I, it too comparative. I think, some, I think that some... Some of the artwork that people are – this is what makes it hard. You know, if you want to know why um, collectors always invest in uh, dead masters' work, it's because they know they know the, the price of it and they know that uh, it's gained in its value. When you start investing in these new artists that are contemporary artists who have only been – you know, doing it for maybe 15, 20 years, nobody really knows where their career is going to go. Yeah, nobody right. knows if that's going to be the next big thing in art. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, uh, who is that guy, uh, Robert, somebody who used to draw the bunny faces and never got his recognition when Herring and all these Andy Warhol and everybody was getting, and then he ended up killing himself. Yeah. And then they have a whole collection of museums touring all over the world now. Uh -huh. It's like... You never know who's going to be the rock star in that art community in like San Fran and then you have your art community in New Jersey or New York or you have your art community in Florida. You never know who's going to be the, the big thing. You know what I mean? And yeah. some of the people that you don't think are going to be the big thing end up being the big thing. You know, yeah. it's just a it's fickle. It's so unpredictable. Yeah, it's very fickle and, and unpredictable. So like a lot of, you know, and no offense to, to brainwash or anything because I'm not a particular, I like his character and his personality, the artwork I'm not very, you know, enamored by, you no, know, like silly. I feel like all that shit's been done by some of our best boys out there on the streets already, you know, like, you know, doing splatter paintings of fucking Adam Ant on, you know, the, the movie. I was like, really? Like, the lines this guy gets outside the fucking art gallery before the... I'm like, that's all, to me, and I don't know, I could be wrong, but to me, I don't find value in that art. Yeah, You know what I mean? And so, like, that's just people following, like, trends. It's like, oh, let's wear bleach-stained jeans because it's cool. Or what about this? I'll give you a better one. Oh, I got to buy those pants with the paint on them at Urban Outfitters that oh, look like man. an artist wore these pants for three months. And, you know, but guess what? 
we're we've all been wearing those pants for years now you know what i mean and here you want to fucking pay? i'll sell you my pair of pants for a hundred bucks with paint on it can know? i tell you that i sort of get slightly annoyed when i see artists wear their paint pants out into public to let everybody know that they well, are a painter and, I, and my best friend does it but he's like he's like a lunatic like you said the only time this guy's leaving the studios to go grab a cup of coffee so he ain't gonna fucking change for anybody but well it's one thing when all your clothes have paint on them that's yeah that's him that's my friend because that's a different thing he's a working artist he spends from seven o'clock in the morning i mean you you eat through the bullshit artist because you know what i'm talking about right yeah, the ones that are real are doing it as a job. And even when you're not working on art, you're still working on art. Like me and you right now, I'm not working on an actual art piece, but part of this piece that we're doing is part of my art. For you understand sure. what For I sure. mean? As far as my career and doing interviews, it, it's I'm never off of art. You're never like when you find your love and you find your vein of gold or like the artist's way and you know what your passion is, you're never off. Your mind is never you think Bill Gates is ever off in his mind or Steve Jobs. They're yeah. constantly thinking and creating. That's you know, when, you never that's when I'd, I'd laugh when people talk about the weekends as if Saturday and Sunday are any different than Monday through Friday. They're not. And, <laughs> it's you know, the exact same. It's like you're, I always tell people, even when I'm not, and there be like times I go through great depression and I don't pick up art for like a month and I'll, I'll stay away from it. Just so that month I'm totally inspired and absorbing music and things and sights and sounds to inspire the artwork two months later when I'm about to work on it. Which is know? really important too sometimes. You got to let your body I, rest almost. You do because it's it you know as an artist you got to constantly be reinventing yourself and the way you you know show the work and the way you do the work you know you have to challenge yourself because it, it'll get stale if you don't you'll get stale or you'll get you know burnt out by it because you have more failures than successes I think being an artist out of all the things in like entertainment and the arts uh, business. It's the hardest fucking thing to do besides backup dancing for singers. It's the most, you know, like everything is art, but then the artists are not really catered to or taken care of or treated properly. You understand? Like whoever made the chair you're sitting on was a fucking artist, but did he get paid well? Like Ikea's getting paid for making that 100,000 of those chairs? No, yeah. probably not. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it always seems like the artist gets the shit end of the stick, and it's much more harder than... Because guess what? I don't see Schnabel on fucking David Letterman. I don't see, you know, uh, Bansky on fucking Conan O'Brien. Nobody's, you know what I mean? There's not talk shows like promoting his work. And, you know, with dancers, actors, singers, they're all on the talk shows. But artists, nobody's saying, hey, man, you just did this major campaign for Obama. And here, let's get Shepard out to talk about it. You know, it's it's not like that for artists. So it's one of the most hardest, I think, professions or careers to kind of like go for because you get more failures and more rejection than you do 
the heights of success and happiness. You Which, know what I mean? You know, like David Cho did um, Barbara Walters' show, and the reality is, is that he was on that show only because he made money off of Facebook stock, not even because yeah, of the work that he made. Yeah, or else nobody would know who the fuck he, you know. That's when he became popular in my eyes. I didn't know who David Cho was until uh, I heard, oh, guess who just paid him $3 million or whatever, how much, 300000 for this, you know. That's when he became famous, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, another thing I hate about the art world, and this is part of <laughs> to capitalist shit, is like, okay, you have somebody that's like a rock star like Bansky. What made Bansky a rock star was not so much his work as much as it was the whole gimmick he did to get his work seen in museums. Mm -hmm. He had a very, this is a very clever guy. I don't know this guy at all. I had never talked to him before. I just am a big fan of him. Bleak Durat was doing the same thing Bansky was doing. But the problem with Bleak Durat he didn't go and hide his shit in a museum and wait for them to find it. And, you know, it became, you know, international news that an artist snuck his pieces into the Whitney, into the fucking, mo you know, that's what put him on the map is yeah. his cleverness. I think uh, part of it, like you were saying, it's 40 percent talent, 60 percent luck. But it's also uh, like a five or 10 percent of how fucking clever are you? Yeah, sure. You know, how that, clever are you? And that is almost like it's just a part of who you are as a person. It's not something that like hard work where like you can work hard and become a good draftsman. But it's almost like you could you, you can't like work hard to become more clever. It seems like, like it's almost like a personality trait. Yeah, you definitely have to be kind of born, born with it. It's almost like common sense. You kind of have to be born with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You think, you know, I think to myself, God, I'm so logical and rational and this, that, and the other. And I see somebody do this move and I'm like, where was the fucking common sense in that? You know, and it's like, like playing it chess. really is something. I think it's almost like a gene. Yeah, you have to be really born with it because and, and believe me, I'm born by uh, I was born by two people who don't have the best common sense and I still have common sense. So it's Skips really generation. like a fucking. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like an oddity almost like where the fuck did this come from? But yeah, yeah sometimes blessed I, with it. I think that's what it takes. It takes two people with no common sense to create somebody with common sense. Yes. And I also believe that going back to cleverness, I think as a female artist in this art world and not taking no for an answer, I was very clever in the way I executed introducing my work to a city who is snubbing me. You know yeah. what I mean? You yeah. have to, when, when you're told, no, I'm not going to show your work. You got to think, well, well, how am I going to show this work? And you have to be clever about it, you know, and you, you, you do have to take big risk and there might be some big loss, but there's some major gain when it comes to the, the education or the lessons you learn from these big risks you take. And that's, yeah. That nobody can teach you and that you cannot pay for those lessons. You know what I mean? Like the, that comes from hustling, you know, and perseverance and being able to look at somebody who maybe, you know, I just got my work stolen from me, uh, performance piece stolen from me last year that a guy performed at Scope and 
You know, it, it just, it, it pissed me off on so many levels, but that, that the guy was so fucking lazy, you know, like that he's just going to come to a contemporary art show with young artists. And because he's an older performance artist, he's just going to take something from some young, maybe nobody artist yet and think he's going to call it and claim it as his own. Yeah. That's a very lazy fucking artist. And and what it does to me, it tells me, well, what else has he taken from other artists? Do you know what I mean? And then when I start researching him, I realize that I'm not the only person he's stolen from. You right. know, it's it's harder to be the person that wants to come out with something um, very unique and creative and and almost be like the martyr of that kind of medium because it's not so ex like lowbrow was 10 years ago yeah you know you have Low to take the risk yeah you you have to even when they're telling you it sucks and no and it's not going to be important the biggest thing you need to do is believe in yourself and keep doing it and this is why kanye west is on the radio this is why you know certain people luke skywalker and the luke crew from two live crew this is why they have a song about doo-doo brown and every time the fucking thing comes on everybody's dancing to it who likes a song named doo-doo brown <laughs> you know but guess what put the right beats behind it put it out here in the right way you'll start singing that fucking song doo-doo brown whether you like the song or not, it's. I hear he has um he does a good barbecue setup somewhere down there in Miami as a place. Uh, I wouldn't know. I'm not a big fan of Luke's. You know. Uh, I think it's out outside of one of his strip clubs. Yeah, well, you know that's another thing. I'm not really. You know, I I know a lot of things about Luke, and uh, you know. Yeah, it's like big business. There's always an ugly side to big business. Sure. Nobody's ever, you know, that fucking pure and clean and oh thy holy person here you know what i mean so you're always gonna it's just like james brown i love the fucking guy i love listening to his music he's the the king of soul and, and funk but guess what how he treated his women i'm not a really big fan sure you know what i mean so you gotta wa watch who you keep as your your idols you know never like bob marley said never let somebody take you down so low and never let anybody bring you up so high and that's really like how i live my life you know yeah it's awesome. like i don't let that ego thing too you know you do shows with some uh, you know when i opened up the gallery it was it was everything I wished for. I always wanted a gallery so I, I'd be, uh, you know, protecting the artist and and they're not going to get fucked and we're going to make. I'm not going to charge fifty percent. I'm going to charge fifteen percent and it's all about you making money and being able to pay your rent and get some food in your stomach. And then you do an art show with an artist and then after it gets a good like turnout and it may get like you know, one article in a, a local rag, all of a sudden this fucking guy who never even knew how to frame his work or put his work up on a wall thinks he's the next fucking, you know, Andy Warhol. And you're like, slow down, motherfucker. You know, you, you, you don't even have, you, you know, like right now what's going on that I'm kind of against is, um, you know, I've been doing this 23 years. So when I see a graffiti artist that's only been doing this for five years, that's a really good artist that 
is putting a $5,000 price tag on something he's been doing for only five years. I'm like, you're fucking crazy because <laughs> I don't know if you're going to become a drug addict and fall off the art scene and then I'm stuck with, you know, because, yeah, I buy art because I love it, but some work I buy as an investment too, you sure. know what I mean? So, because I'm a collector as well. So for me, it's like, you know, that kind of pisses me off when like a graffiti artist will throw something on a piece of wood that took him a half hour to do and throw a $5,000 price tag on it when I've spent like 23 years of my life experimenting with my form or my medium and I've finally mastered it and now I put a $5,000 price tag on it because I put the work in. You know, the, it's just like tattoos. The, the tattoo industry has changed and that's a part of our art world you know it yeah. it used to be a, a a thing a business where you had to be an apprentice for 10 years before they put you in a chair and start inking up people nowadays go to fucking tattoo school in six weeks you could put ink on somebody you know like uh or even this uh the tattoo artists i grew up with that are pretty legendary um you know, I came to them when I was like, you know, 14, 15 and getting into trouble and saying, I want a tattoo on my neck. I want Evo <laughs> on my neck. And the tattoo artist would be like, get the fuck out of here. I will never put a tattoo on your neck. I will never put one on the palm of your hand. I will never tattoo one on your tongue. I will never put one on your lip. It's not going to happen. Come back with a shoulder piece or, you know, something on the leg. Maybe I'll do it. But, you know, these kind of fucking tattoo artists had, you know, some, some, code of ethics you know mm. with uh you know they knew i was a 15 year old kid who was thinking stupid and thank god they protected me in that way and that i don't have some gnarly fucking neck piece looking like i just got out of a penitentiary you know what i mean but nowadays nothing's about that anymore it's yeah. about instant gratification so if i paint totally. something really pretty and put it on canvas then this person's getting ten thousand dollars for it i should be getting ten thousand dollars for it too yeah. well the difference is this person gets ten thousand because they've been working on this for the last 50 years of their life you see yeah, what i mean right. whereas this newbie he's get you know cause is a good example of that in a way the graffiti artist cause mm -hmm. because and I love his work, and no offense to Cause, I really like this guy. I don't know him, but he's a guy that I like. Um, you know, he's a prime example of somebody who um, had the talent, but they had the luck to go with it. Because, like, look how successful he is as a commercial artist now. You know, same with, uh, you know, who's another one that I really love, and I hope one day I get to own a piece of real work of his because I own a print is uh jeremy fish jeremy fish is a really great artist you know what i mean and he he does really well for himself you know on a commercial level i believe because of the t-shirts and the skateboards and then mm -hmm. he got really smart with not being like the greedy artist that doesn't want to put anybody on and he started taking all his friends and collaborating on skateboard decks so now they're all getting kind of famous. Uh, you know, like, he's somebody I really admire. Um, uh, what's his name? Jer Jeremy Fish. I think, and he kind of stays low-key, too, that guy. You know, yeah. he's not out trying to be at every art show and taking pictures to fo post on Facebook every fight. You know what I mean? Like, he's a serious career artist, you know? And and I, I, I kind of think there has to be, with my work, my work will never be, 
commercial because I don't draw and I don't paint. So there's no mass production that can go into my work. Yeah. And that's why I find my work will one day be really important maybe because there is these aren't mass produced. There's no print or poster or, you know, book bag or, you know, pocketbook with the image on it that's (laughs) gonna be sold to you. When you buy when you buy a piece of my work, you're buying a one of a kind. And there's never gonna be a replica to it. You know what I mean? That's an interesting thing that I didn't really think about. Like the capabilities of of certain mediums to be able to make a a mass production of something and sort of supplement the income in that way. Yeah, exactly. Like just that exactly. capability is a is a slight benefit, or even a great benefit, really. It, it really is because there's see no company AT and T isn't going to come to me and go, Eva, do you think you can do my campaign? For you know my marketing campaign. You for, never know though. Like I, yeah, I feel but, like your work but, might work in a sort of film. It, idea. it would. Like if somebody really wanted it to happen, it could. But I'm just saying, like you know, when a collector buys my piece, they own it, and there's no other kind of it, and yeah. nobody's gonna be able to. Uh, replicate uh, 50 of them. There's not going to be any prints. There's not going to be any t-shirts. They're really owning a piece. So why the work is so, and this is another factor that leads into why my work is so expensive. My work is so expensive right now. And it's not really to the European market. It's only to the American market. My work is expensive right now because I know it's one of a kind. I know I don't do replicas and I need to make as much money as I can off of it now. So when they do start trading it like fucking baseball cards and they're the ones making the millions off of it. You see what I'm saying? They're the ones that are going to kind of own the rights to that work, you know, because once somebody buys your shit, they own the rights to the work, you know? So it's, you know, you could talk to me all day long about this art world because I I really. It's so weird, right? Yeah, I really pay attention and it's it's really like an onion. I I call the art world like the the onion, the flowering onion. There's so many layers to it. There's so many dynamics to it. You know what I mean? Because we all like I think all the artists out here that are hustling and struggling and making great art. You know, not a lot of them are the 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 best sellers of the art market because certain people are keeping them from the collectors or making it. You know, it's all it's all very complicated and very layered. And, um, you know, they have like that blue chip kind of mentality, you know, the ones that could make people's careers a lot easier. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For the big career artists, not for the start artists, for the mid career artists, the guys that are in like their thirties and forties and been doing it for a while and showing all over and, you know, still trying to hustle and make the bread and butter, you know, like we could talk about this shit all day long. Well, we'll have to have, we'll have to have you back on for a, a part two. Yeah, definitely. I'm down, and and thanks so much for inviting me on the show. You know, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm stoked you took the time to do it. Let's um let's plug your your website where people can go again one more time since we um it's uh, evolovelimited dot com or stashgallery dot com or you could get me on Facebook Evo Love Miami on Facebook or Twitter. Um, 
and it's been a, a joy talking to you and, and really like going playing tennis with the art world and all the different uh, aspects of it. Yeah. And have me on again. And when you're in Miami, this is your home, dude. So I don't know what the fuck happened. I guess, you know, I was having a heat stroke out Fountain. They didn't have no fucking AC on it. I'm, I'm 40 with some hormonal issues. So I was either <laughs> pissed or so hot I thought I was going to fucking pass out and die. I, thought no, I think I think yeah. the one time I tried to talk to you, you may have been chasing some dude out the front door or side door. I think you were you were about to strangle somebody, so it was oh, just circumstantial. Oh, well, that was a part of the whole, uh, you know, these guys, you know, when I had the artwork stolen, it's very rare that you can expose an artist that has stolen your concept and idea, you know, that's almost never fucking done. Well, when I exposed the artist, uh, the guy who uh, picked up the story was Walter Robinson from Artnet. And so it made international news. And that's when all these people that, you know, were behind this one artist that ripped off my work, they were all like in support of him and trash talking me and my husband and calling us crystal meth heads. And, you know, I don't do drugs. So it kind of really pissed me off. And uh, one of the guys that I was about to choke out that night he was like part of the whole Facebook crew. You know how like, you know, everything's on social sites now and everybody yeah, has an opinion and catch everybody talking shit. shit. Well, you know, I didn't talk shit on Facebook. I waited. I'm very old school and I grew up in New York with a bunch of Puerto Ricans. And, um, you know, we don't really talk shit. We wait until we see you to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. So everybody kind of pretended like they were Superman and Wonder Woman on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I kind of let mutual friends of ours know, because we have many, that you need to be uh, aware that um, – I, I don't act like Wonder Woman behind a computer. I am going to see you on the street, and when I do, you will suffer the consequences of that conversation. Right. And so I've been plucking them one by one, and I've been running into them very at, like, not really seek. Well, one, I sought out on purpose, but, you know, I've been waiting to bump into people mm -hmm. and confronting them with the words that they used against me. And they think because it's been a year, oh, my God, what are you talking about? What, what did I say? What do you mean? And I have a, a, a memory like an elephant sometimes. So, you know, it's you caught me when I was ready to fucking kill that guy okay i was like i was ready and it was like part of me was like don't lose your composure because you don't know what collectors are around you but i was like fuck it if you love art and you like hardcore artists then i'll fit in perfectly with anybody's collection because uh you know i'm somebody that's not going to stand for that bullshit you yeah, know I'm, I'm somebody that's and and what i said is I'm going to defend my work at all costs, whether you like it or not. So the, the best thing for you to do is not copy my shit again. You see what I'm <laughs> yeah, saying? Yeah, right. Beautiful. And uh, when you're in Miami, man, don't be a stranger because, you know, all my friends that I'm connected to and I really love Masse and stuff – and, you know, all those guys are good guys. You know, you're sure. ever in Miami. Believe me, I'm not a stuck-up person. I'm totally, like, down to earth. And, no, I you know. know. I, I'm kind of 
That's the thing with the internet. You can. It's hard to tell when people are joking and when people are serious. I was being slightly joking. I knew you were. You were. You were having some stress when I tried. Yeah, to Yeah, I was to fucking you. pissed because that guy had like this light box helmet on, and I was like, when I found out who was behind that helmet, I was like, oh hell no, you got to get out of my face right now, buddy, because cool. we we didn't forget what the fuck you said, and you should. And this was an artist that I kind of helped out. That's so the it was worst. Even more heartbreaking that. You know, knowing how to myself I am and I'm not out in the scene and I'm not trying to climb all these schmoozy ladders and art politics in Miami, that he should have been really for the the underdog and the outsider. And he wasn't. He went for the popular crew and, and, you know, people a little people a little, uh, you know, no artist, most artists, if they steal from another artist, they're not going to say they did. You sure. know what I mean? And yeah. that was the whole point I was trying to make to his, like, you know, people that were trying to defend him is I've never met somebody who steals a bar of gold out of a bank and and publicly flashes a board saying, hey, man, I stole this. Isn't this cool? Like, yeah. it's, it's not fucking possible. But I also said in the same note, because I'm a very rational person, I said to them, you know, I really understand that you're trying to defend your friend, but they ripped me off. And it's right. The proof is in the pudding. All you got to do is look back a year later from his performance and look at the pictures. He totally ripped me off. And in the whole 35 years of doing performance art, he had never thought about this idea until the year after he saw me do it. Which so again, it's just like we have know. this this great equalizer that's the internet that's sort of calling a lot of people on their bullshit because there's now a frame of reference oh. where for a long oh. time there wasn't. Yeah, and you know, what's funny about it is, uh, you know, that's so much proof because, you know, because of social sites, you do get to promote your work on mm -hmm. back then MySpace. So I had all this documentation of how this was really my thing. And so when he got exposed, at first I did the right thing. I contacted the gallery and I contacted the, the artist and they kind of ignored me because they didn't think I was anything to worry about. But the minute that shit hit Artnet and it was international news, oh, goddamn, you should have seen all the things being posted about Evo Love. It was like all of a sudden, oh, well, here, let me put this all on Facebook. And, and you know, you know, whenever somebody does something wrong and they know they're doing it wrong, they have enough time to make up a story to justify their wrongdoing. They have yeah. all the answers just in case somebody asked them this or when did you do it or how'd you do it? You know, they got the perfect answers, you know, because they know they're going to be confronted with those questions. Yeah. And this person was well versed by the time Artnet got a hold of the story and, and like really put it out there. And I was very fortunate for uh, Walter Robinson and Artnet for um, – helping me expose that person. And there wasn't really much uh, I had to do on my end because, like I said, the proof was in the pictures. I yeah. mean, you could just look at the pictures and look at the careers and say, okay, if this guy's a career performance artist, she's right. One of the valid points I had is in the 35 years of this uh, guy's career, he never thought of this concept until the year after I did it. Well, that's what's kind of interesting, the idea of performance art to a certain... Like, thinking of it in terms of, like, acting. A lot of times actors are fucking phenomenal at acting, but they're being fed their lines from a writer. 
Yeah, but what makes it what makes it an art form is how they execute those lines. No, totally, without a doubt. And so, and so, like, I think I took a very popular thing, and nobody, because it was so popular, no performance artist had ever done it because they probably thought it had already been done already. Right. And that creativity is so strange that we're all kind of pulling from similar ethers a lot of times. Not in in this case, but just in general, like the idea that we own our creativity, where sometimes it's just like an idea just drops in your brain out of fucking total left field. And you really have, it's almost like you don't even really have ownership yeah, I've of had, it. I've had uh, situations where I've had like the same idea as another artist, but the difference between me is whoever does it first, I don't do it anymore. Yeah, exactly. And that has to do with your your knowledge and, you and know, research. That, yeah. And even like, you know, the knowledge to be able, the integrity enough to go and search out if a certain idea has been done before. Well, not. you know, getting back to Bansky or, or <clears throat> I, I know I mispronounced his name, but I don't give a shit. Um, getting back to him, you know, it was like once he put his work in the museums, you know, like once the work was in the museums, it was like, oh, fuck, that was so clever. Now we can't do it because it's already been done. <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. I mean? A lot of people like, get oh, jealous man. of good ideas. Yeah, yeah. Like, why didn't we think of that? That was so fucking, man, we could have done that. But it was like, oh, shit, he capitalized on that. He did it, though. And that's like, sort of what I'm thinking about. Like, those type of ideas, they don't come around by sitting in a room thinking, all right, what's the next cool idea that will make me famous? It never comes from that. It's always like yeah. a natural progression of working and things sort of falling into place. It's never a like a master well, plan. Just like, just like Shepard, you know, he was showing somebody a point, like to prove a point. He was like, okay, let's take... Uh, obey a famous you know this famous wrestler you know um andre the giant which was already really big in skateboarding andre the giant was already something skateboarders were doing and promoting and skateboarding magazines you know what i yeah. mean and then here goes shepherd he picks it up and makes it his own and then it fucking takes off and everybody wants to know what's the sticker about? Why do I keep on seeing Andre the Giant all over the place? Yeah, you know? So weird. So I, I like a lot you know, like I said, I don't know any of these guys in person. I don't sit and talk with them. I don't know them as friends. But what I admire about uh, you know, Shepard is he's probably the same age as me because we have like the same kind of likes. When it comes to music, I, I've heard him DJ before and I thought, oh, God, come on, this guy can't fucking DJ. And the next thing you know, I'm dancing to every song he's putting out on the fucking, you know, one and twos. Because uh... he, grew up, he grew up with Wu-Tang. He grew up with Billy Idol. He grew up with, you know, Pat Benatar. He grew up just like I did. You know what I mean? And that's an extension of our work. You know, that's a, you know, all of us are doing things that our extensions from our childhood and what we were brought up with and what we were introduced to. Yeah. And if it wasn't for, you know, a dad who loved, uh, R and B and Motown and, and, uh, you know, black music, I, I, I probably wouldn't like black music. You know, if, if, you know, my dad was constantly introducing me to Donna Summer and, and Diana Ross. So like, you know, these are the people that are like my, my that's what I'm into you know what I mean now you know it's so funny I, I always laugh because 
you know, I look at myself at this mixed breed woman that sits in our house doing art. And I always w wonder, like, you know, if you sat in my room and listened to what like I watch or what I listen to, you would never think I'm listening to old school R&B or, you know, like I'm jamming out to Patsy Cline songs like nobody. Yeah. I curse like a sailor. I'm from New York. I'm New Yorkian. She fucking listens to Patsy Cline. Like, <laughs> if I wail out to Patsy Cline, like when nobody's in the room, I'll try to sing like this bitch you know that's what I, mean? what I think about sometimes when i first started listening to robert johnson you know i thought about what would he think in the you know 20s or 30s uh i'm i'm thinking i'm putting it in the right the right decade i saw that movie the devil and daniel johnson um is that him daniel johnson is that the schizophrenic artist uh, yeah uh -huh. musician um daniel johnson i saw that movie with him and i uh I immediately went to the website and I had to learn more about this artist and uh, I ended up buying a, a piece because, you know, he thinks ducks are like uh, the guardian angels and stuff that he draws. So I bought a duck piece and, uh, you know, what a brilliant fucking guy, man. You know, I missed right. his show this year for Art Basel. He was down here. They showed his work and had a had him play music and i missed it because i was at our basil you know what I, I wanted to see um david lynch's hotel bar restaurant that he set up somewhere in miami did you hear about that i didn't get to go to it he but recreated I, I, a, a a restaurant from one of his movies yeah when, whenever you're when you're locked into that's another thing that sucks about you know the art fairs and, and these are the pros and cons of you're working. Fitness. You're working. You're not enjoying everything else. Yeah, you're not. You're not seeing a lot of the good shit you could be seeing, you know. And I was lucky enough to see some of David Lynch's work at uh, Oh Wow Gallery when those guys first opened up about three years ago. They had Neck Face as one of their shows, and the show after that was a bunch of photography from David Lynch. And um, he's one of my heroes. I got to tell you, like. I didn't really, you know, I, I knew all the movies he did and I watched all those things and I thought they were great, but I really didn't know the kind of character he was until I just saw an interview with him on some art channel with a singer, somebody from Incubus or something was interviewing him mm -hmm. and they were talking about art in schools and stuff like that. I forget what they were really discussing. And just hearing that guy talk, he's such a brilliant dude and he's so down to earth and God, I fell in love with him. I yeah. wish I would have talked to him when I saw him walking around the gallery. But, you know, you kind of, you know, when you're around a lot of celebrity, you know, you find that they're just like me and you and you don't want to invade their personal space. Sure. And they have enough people like pulling their sleeve and wanting to talk to them and get an autograph that I just, yeah. you know, I won't really put myself out there that much, you know, in trying to make the connection you know it's like hard Shepherd in those environments was, too yeah Shepard was at the show you know Shepard likes my work by the way I heard this through the grapevine because when he DJed at Fountain he was really interested in who was making the work I was making he wanted to meet the person but the girl kind of cock blocked me because I didn't really like her and I had attitude with her so she kind of <laughs> cock blocked that whole situation but um, you know when I went to his gallery you know, I, I, like I said, I, I was like, okay, what's this going to be about? We're going to see who this guy really is. And then I go in and it's these two women painters. I'm going, oh, my God, man, I fucking like Shepard. And he DJed at the at the show, which I thought he was going to suck. And he was really great. And then I'm like in his spot. 
And I want to bring up another thing before we hang up. What I found really fucking great about Shepard Fairey was he had a section in the back of the gallery that sold books and merchandise. Um, and, you know, he had a lot of books of, of his old work that he was selling, you know, that Tashin or whoever made a book about him. But there was this book that I bought. I don't know if you can see it. It's yeah, I own that one. Yeah. And I thought, like, I walked in that store and, you know, he has the typical books, graffiti books and this and that. But I found this book for him to be carrying this another commendable thing that made me like him even so much more yeah because this book that you own as you know since you own it and i saw the show that it went to also it it has no fucking pictures it's not about oh look at my work it's the shit and let me talk about my work for three pages in this book it was more about how not to get fucked you know what i mean Uh and i thought it was so cool that you know people want to talk all the shit they want about this guy But he really does come from a good place. He really does. Like, and, you know, to put a book out in your gallery that's protecting artists, I have to respect you for that. You know, because a lot of these galleries, they're putting the book out there that's hot on the market right now. You know, like, oh, Bansky's new book. Oh, yeah, I'm going to put this out because it's going to make money. Everybody loves Bansky. They're going to buy it. And it's more a money thing. But this book was about artists looking up for themselves and i thought here they are giving these artists a heads up you want to read the title for read the title for the it's called sponsorship the fine art of corporate sponsorship the corporate sponsorship of fine art and it has a bunch of essays in it by shepherd and um rob walker and um jackie millar and then it it says it, it it was Ryan McGinnis who was a part of the whole Dash Snow crew, I think, right? Ryan no, no, McGinnis. that's Ryan McGinley. Oh, okay. But all, and but you know, a really popular artist. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it, I really thought it was really cool that for that 15, 16 year old graffiti street artist who has dreams of really making it in the art world and that is probably like doing really good imagery and is getting contacted by corporate people to, you know, maybe work with them and doing a campaign for. I thought it was really cool that they're looking out for this younger generation and they're not letting them get taken advantage of. If yeah. that makes sense, yeah, you know, that, sure. and I thought that was some really cool fucking shit because a lot of people can talk shit about this guy Shepard, but he's putting his money where his mouth is, so to speak. You know yeah. what I mean? He's like, yeah, he's commercial artist, but what? You know, I've had this fight with so many people. Oh well, my girlfriend, she's not on Facebook. She doesn't want to promote her work on a website. I'm not into it for the the financial aspect, and I'm not in for it. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, yeah, you like, fucking retarded. I'm like, I'm like, you know what? I'm sure Van Gogh wasn't in it for the financial, but guess what? Uh, people made him a big business because in every museum you can get Van Gogh stationery, a Van Gogh journal, a Van Gogh book. You know, you're going to turn commercial whether you like it or not if you're a really good artist who's getting that kind of attention. You understand what I mean? There's no way around it. Yeah, and it's just like 
the knockoff Bob Marley shirts at, at the little Haiti stores around here. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're people are going to make you commercial whether you like it or it's like the Misfits or Black Flag. Yeah, these weren't the most commercial bands, but they become commercial because of their cult following wants a fucking Misfits shirt. You know, yeah. and if you're not going to make it for me and put it out on your own, whatever, then I'm going to make one and I'm going to sell it to 20,000 people that want a Misfits shirt. Yeah, you know and what then I mean? you're going to be considered so to sell out anyway. I, yeah, I always laugh at these artists when they're like, oh, I'm not in for it for the money and I'm not going to be a commercial artist. Let me tell you, if you make it to great success, you're going to be a commercial artist whether you like it or not, because they're going to have the journal out. They're going to have the pocketbook. They're going to have the T-shirt. They're going to have the fucking, you know what I mean by that? Yeah, They're going right. to create the merchandise that goes with your legacy yeah. of you being a great artist. So why that's not just take control of it from, right from the get-go to a certain extent? Yeah, and that's the problem. A lot of artists, I think a lot of artists do want to take control. Look, I got a graffiti artist here named G Wiz who is a fucking phenomenal artist. I mean, this kid could do toys. He could have five toys that kid robot tomorrow but nobody's approaching him and the guys that do get hooked up with kid robot are so selfish and so worried about oh well if i put this guy on then they're not gonna want me anymore and so the kid he kind of gives up on the whole dream of having his toy in a store you know that's another again another reason why i'm doing this podcast yeah, yeah. And, and I, I commend you for doing it because, you know, this is going to allow collectors. You know, there's a thing with collectors, too, that's happening now is they they don't want to go through the gallery to get your work and pay the 50 percent tag on to mm -hmm. your stuff. You know, they want to buy directly from the artists. And now that artists have computers and technology is so big, we have our own websites that we could throw a number, contact us, and sell the art directly. So this whole, like, art market, art fair, art gallery shit is changing by the day. Yeah. It really is. You know, I tell artists nowadays, you shouldn't be concerned about an art gallery more than you should be concerned about an art dealer. And usually art dealers don't have art galleries. Uh, they work at the office. That's the know? PSA artist. Among all the other things, that, that's the artist PSA. Public service announcement for artists today. You know, do you, Ben. And if you do you and you... And you are really an artist and you are going and challenging yourself and you're, you know, 40, 30, 10 fucking years and you keep pounding it, just, you know, don't follow the trends. Don't, you know, I, I saw so many artists when Bansky became famous trying to do work like Bansky. Guess what? I'm not going to fucking buy your work because you're not Bansky. I'm buying Bansky's work because of Bansky's legacy, who he is, what he's about. The knockoff for, a, you know, $1,000 cheaper or $10,000 $10, cheaper, I really don't give a fuck about. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? I really, I don't want to own it. I don't want to own any work that is copying off, like the Basquiat's. How many art fairs have you been into in the last year where people are still fucking trying to be Basquiat? It's like, be you, dude. Take Basquiat shit to the next level. Right. Don't do Basquiat. I've seen a million Basquiat's that aren't even Basquiat, you know? Yeah. It's so confusing that now that 
when you do see uh, you you got to be really well read on Basquiat but it's so fucked up now that like art shows should not only um get collectors out it should inspire the younger generation to do art as well you know there's many yeah. different levels to this so when you're you know now you're confusing those kids that are learning about art because they don't even know what they're looking at is a real Bansky or not. You understand mm-hmm. what I mean? It's confusing when you have 80 Banskis and 80,000 Basquiat's out there. It's do your own fucking work because you'll be respected more like Keith Haring. He didn't really go to art school. He cr- created his own characters and his parents encouraged that. You know, they didn't say, hey, draw Bugs Bunny. They told him, draw whatever fucking bunny you want. If the bunny's missing an eye, it's your character. Yeah. You created it. You know, there's not enough of that originality going on. And that goes back to the risk, you know. Be willing to take a risk that your whatever work you're making may get shit on. It may never be understood by a generation. You may never get paid for it. You might get paid large sums for it. But yeah. you have to, you can't look at what successes other people have had and try to adapt them into your own success. I mean, you can have goals and sort of like levels of expectation, but in terms of actually making the work, you have to take the risks of failing within the things that you're making, not just trying to make I, I what think other people are making. For me, what, what gave me that hard edge and that like hard, that tough skin, you know, was. I grew up in a bad kind of family where, you know, there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of sexual abuse. There was very many elements of bad things going on. Right. And I think that, you know, when you're rejected by your mom, that's the worst rejection you can have in your life, you know, because that's a parent that gave birth to you that's rejecting you. So when you go into life and I started modeling at a very young age because I was like the the token Puerto Rican exotic girl in a fucking rednecky hick town where there was like the only person darker than me was black people, you know, so they didn't really know how to treat a brown person or, uh-huh. you know, somebody with olive skin, you know, they, well, what yeah. the fuck are you kind of thing? Are you black? Are you white? What are you, you know, so I think that the modeling and the rejection of this very small kind of local town bathing suit modeling, not like modeling like Calvin Klein, but like modeling the local fashions of the fucking bathing suit maker of a surfer town. It gave me a lot of uh, experience with rejection. And so I, by the time I got to be an artist, I I had done many things in my life with like, you know, trying to be on MTV, trying to do this, trying to and always getting no for an answer. So no, did not really it wasn't a sensitive subject. I wasn't taking it personal. I was looking for the yes and not focusing on all the no's. You know what I mean? That's something I could I could learn from you. Yeah, you know, you got to be like, okay, fuck it. This uh, it's no to this person. But guess what? I'm I'm sure when, you know, new wave music came in, people were like, oh, I hate it, I hate it. But then guess what? You're always going to have a million people that do like it. Yeah. You understand what I mean? Yeah, and like it might not step. be in your neighborhood, but you could be big in China. You know, there's <laughs> artists out here that are big in other countries and nobody pays attention to them in America. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just the way it is. And so, you know, you got to keep on 
going until you get the yes people, until you get them right in front of the right audience is yeah. what I'm trying to say, you know, yeah. and you can't give up. And if you give up, then you never really was the the profound artist you thought you were because this is the kind of shit that's in your heart and soul. You can never give it up. And that's what's funny, you know, like a lot of people, I, we hear that a lot, like when people like espouse those types of mantras. But with artists, I find that it's 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 really real. Like you could say, like, I want to give up all the time. Like I think about how easy it'd be just to go get a job and be able to like work 40 hours a week and be able to pay my bills much easier than I am now. Maybe afford some more amenities in the house <laughs> yeah. or something. Be able but, to take a girl out to a nice dinner. Yeah. Right. But the fact is, is that I can't. As many times have I said that I just want to give it up and do something different, I can't. Like, it's it's ingrained in the it's DNA. So, it's so much a part of your almost like DNA and I'm sure like if you really read, you know, if you had it made where, you know, the, the show uh, Finding Your Ancestors picked you up, you would probably find that your ancestors were artists. It really is in your blood and in yeah. your genes to be a creative mind, you right. know, and a creative spirit. You know, it's it, it's we're we're. We're very influenced by our ancestors, even though we think because they died a hundred years ago, we're not. We are connected to them. And so mm -hmm. when you have carpenters in the family, if like somebody today is a carpenter, I best bet you could trace back to 200 years of carpentry in that family. <laughs> yeah, you without know what I mean? doubt. So, uh, yeah, it, it's something that really is in me and in my family, everybody is uh, very creative in my Puerto Rican side of the family and my German side of the family. Everybody's very mathematical and uh, scientific, you know, mm -hmm. but on my on my mom's side, everybody's dancers, singers, entertainers, you know, they're more in the arts and entertainment and they have good looks and, you know, make nice stuff. And, you know, <laughs> so it's definitely I'm, I'm sure if somebody went through my ancestry, there would be a lot of like probably uh voodoo priestess and uh mystical sages and uh muses and stuff because mm -hmm. i find that another part of my dynamic in my art world or in my art legacy or whatever you want to call it is that i i run into a lot of artists and i inspire a lot of artists and i try to protect a lot of artists and i collect a lot of art like it's like I have this whole dynamic of different layers of just not being the artist, you know what I mean? But really bringing artists together that might have never spoken before or never thought they had anything in common. Like I'm a connector. So, mm -hmm. you know, as well as what I'm doing to try to inspire people who might want to pick up my medium and start doing it. You know, not a lot of people do this type of work that I do. So I hope that, you know, when I leave this planet, I've 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 given inspiration to like, you know, 20 people in a generation that'll start to really um, do this type of work and put it on the art world map. You know what I mean? Yeah. Besides just me and Joseph and Chris Cousy. I mean, we're coming found object artists and um, this type of work that I do work. We're, we're on the up and up now. You know what I mean? Like, as far as the art world goes, before you had to be a painter, and that was it. 
Yeah. You know, but now, you know, this just like photography has been considered an art in the last like what, 50 years or 40 years. They're starting to really take it seriously now. You know, I think this work will be taken seriously one day because they're like, you know, I, I kind of think like I'm very inspired by Andy Warhol, even though he's another person that I might not have liked everything about his personality. But the one thing that I I always ask myself sometimes is like, because I love pop culture and stuff, I'll be like, man, I wonder if Andy Warhol would have dug this shit. And I think, you know, kind of like I compare my work to like Andy Warhol cookie jars. You remember the cookie jars he had that he would stash all these mementos in and then he would bury them in the backyard mm -hmm. or whatever or yeah. in his garage. And then, you know, when he died, all the cookie jar series came out and it wasn't cookie jars he made. It was cookie jars he collected and kind of used them as time capsules. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a lost art form, time capsules. So kind of my work, what I compare it to is time capsules because I'm taking the objects and the tchotchkes and the knickknacks and the things of my generation and older generations and making art out of it. So they are time capsules yeah, because a... you can trace the art, you can trace the objects and the art back into history and what they were really used for. It's like Laura, a, a preservation. Florida, what? It's like a preservation, in other words. Oh, yeah, big time. And, and you know, I, I see them in epoxy, so I'm wondering, you know, will they stay, Will they live for 200 years? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with acrylic paint in the next 200 years, too. We, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. It's yeah. going to be really interesting. <laughs> well... well Again, I want to thank you for taking the time to shoot the shit with me. I, I do appreciate it. It was a, a great conversation. And uh, No problem. And like I said, I'm going to, you know, are you out of California, like L.A.? Where are you I'm in of? San Diego. So it's two hours south of L.A. Yeah, you're not that far. No. I mean, do road trips. You know, we're going to be up there in June. So if he's doing a Disney movie. So if you're if you're around town, I don't know how much you travel, but. You know, let's keep in contact because I'm in L.A. I don't know anybody. You know, I know a, a few people, but, you know, always more the merrier. And, you know, we'll get to hang out on your homeland and shit. You'll take me around San Diego. You know, my best friend is Jen O'Brien. I don't know if you know much about the skateboarding world over there. Do you? Uh, somewhat. I'm not... Well, she used to be with Bob Burnquest for about mm -hmm. 15 years and had a kid with him, and he cheated on her and shit, so now they're broken up. But uh, she's a, I'm working she's to get a, Steve Caballero on the show. She's a, uh, she's a pioneer in women's skateboarding, you know what I mean? Like, she's, she's definitely a pioneer. We grew up together in uh, Florida, in Central Florida together, and I was a surfer. And she was a skateboarder. She was the first person to put me on a deck, really. Oh, you know, besides my uncle when he was in his disco days. But, <laughs> it, you know, she was like when skateboarding became like tricks and all that shit off of half pipes and stuff like that. She's definitely a pioneer. So I go I go out there and she lives somewhere around San Diego. You know what I mean? Okay, cool. Yeah. And there's also a train that runs from L.A. to San Diego that's super like it goes all the way down the coastline. It's a nice yeah. ride and it's cheap. So. I'm, yeah, uh, no, we usually have a rent a car because they pay per diem and they pay for all our our you know living and and driving and eating expenses while they're out there. So cool, we'll, you know, um, we'll drive up and see you. You know, so just keep in touch with me. Don't be a stranger and don't think I was snubbing you. I would never snub you. No, I know. I was just fucking with you. 
All right, good. <laughs> All right. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. All right. All right. Have a great have day. A good day. Bye. Bye.